Physics tells us there are a number of fundamental constants which define the universe in which we live. Opinion is split on just how many of these constants there are, but one universal constant that these scientists have neglected to include is that of cruelty, the strongest form of which, of course, is the cruelty of a child. Would you believe that my letters advocating the recognition of this have been roundly ignored by universities? Raygun. Tim found an alien in the woods. He had been wandering alone when a whiff of smoke tickled his nostril. Not woody-smelling smoke, all roasting leaves and sweet-boiling sap, but bad smoke, the smoke of exposed wiring, of tar and melting plastic and the chemicals in the cupboard under the kitchen sink. He followed the smell, the air in the woods becoming thicker and wavier as he went, like he was walking through water, and the stronger the smell got, the more aware Tim became of a constant high-pitched ringing, almost too high to hear. He felt it in his ears more than heard it, a consistent, discomforting pressure, not unlike that caused by the silent whistles blown by dog walkers. The smoke caught in his throat. He coughed. His eyes stung a little. He knew right away he was looking at an alien. There was the creature's aircraft, for one, a flying saucer, a flattish circle with a dome on the top like a fried egg. It had evidently crash-landed, and one side of the saucer, although circles, Tim thought, did not really have sides, had crumpled on impact. The mud on the ground sizzled wherever it met the craft. The dome, which was shiny and black, had cleanly cracked in two, the smaller half falling away and sliding off the saucer's wide rim onto the ground. Within the fractured dome, Tim could see a console of buttons and flashing lights, at which was seated the alien. It was in a bad way. A nasty wound on its bulbous, grey-green head was spurting blood like a water pistol. The blood, Tim noted, was red, just as blood ought to be. There was a second, larger gash on the creature's torso, and messy, mince-like viscera had slopped out of it onto the console. At first, Tim thought it was dead, until he saw the goop undulating and realised the little pilot was breathing. Tim picked up a long stick and walked closer to the craft. The alien, seeing him only now, revealed a hand from beneath the console. It was holding something, which it pointed at Tim. The effort of these quick, defensive movements, however, proved more than it could manage, and a shuddering spasm overtook its body. It yelped in pain. The yelp sounded like the hiss of a goose crossed with the screech of a chimpanzee. In the midst of this convulsion, it dropped the object which bounced off the side of the saucer and landed on the ground a few yards from Tim's feet. The loss of this object proved distressing to the alien, who looked at Tim its eyes like black billiard balls, and made a noise which, though utterly undecipherable from a linguistic standpoint, conveyed a pleading tone. Tim looked down at the object, having to squint a little through the haze. Seeing it now, he felt silly for not having immediately identified it. It was a gun, 
It had a grip and a trigger, and though it couldn't be said to have a barrel, the body of the thing came to a point, just before which there was a sight. This, Tim knew without a flutter of uncertainty, was a ray gun. Had the creature intended to kill him, Tim wondered, or did it aim at him only as a warning? Did the creature know he was only eleven? He was just about average height for his age, and it was clear with a look that he would only have been able to sit in the dome of the saucer with difficulty. Perhaps this alien wasn't a grown-up either, but a delinquent youth out for a joyride in its dad's motor. What trouble it would be in if its parents caught wind of what had happened. Its breathing was slowing now. It made a half-hearted attempt to reach out of its seat for its dropped weapon, though it was clear to both Tim and the alien that the gun was quite beyond its grasp. Tim extended his arm and, with his stick, batted the gun away from the saucer and towards himself. Then he bent down and picked it up. The alien slumped in its seat, defeated. It let its eyes close and held its breath. After half a minute, it opened them again and looked expectantly at Tim, who hadn't moved. It thought, Tim realised, it was going to be shot. He held up the gun and examined it closely. It really was precisely as Tim would have imagined it to be. Red and gold, with an ovoid body, around which ran several rings, bringing to mind the planet Saturn. Switch on the telly on a Saturday morning and you're all but guaranteed to see a gun just like it in the hand of some cartoon space hero. In fact, now that he thought of it, Tim had a stack of drawings on his bedroom desk that surely contained at least one picture of an object just like this, probably copied from How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. The alien had started moaning, a harsh, gurgling sound that gave Tim an unease in the pit of his stomach. He pointed the gun at the dying creature and pulled the trigger. This encounter, though unprecedented, was not inconceivable to Tim. He spent a lot of his time imagining similarly fantastical situations and had a knack for descriptive language which lent his accounts of riding dragons or summoning ghosts a credence which left adults impressed and unnerved in equal measure. His father had dubbed him the Great Pretender. However, being great at pretending no longer held the cachet it once had among Tim's classmates. At some point over the past few years, looking back he was unable to pinpoint exactly when, Games at lunch break had slid steeply away from the imaginative and towards the athletic and rules-based. Break time had become just more P.E. Instead of arguing over who would get to be Spider-Man, the boys now argued over who ended up in goal. Tim, who two times out of three had ended up being Spider-Man because he was the best at doing voices, was not even in the running for goalie. Once he had been allowed to play referee, until it became clear that he had no knowledge of the game's workings and was issuing yellow and red cards at random, from then on, he spent his lunches apart from the other boys. It was a supreme injustice, Tim felt, that his areas of expertise had been consigned to the rank of kid stuff. He'd not been entirely alone in his increasingly marginal interests. Joel Morgan was a similarly unsporty boy who had moved to Tim's school midway through year five, whereupon the class as a whole had taken a visceral disliking to him. The exception, of course, was Tim, who found Joel's rapid, unfocused speech and total inability to control the volume of his voice not obnoxious, but intriguing. The two of them had become, for the remainder of Year 5, a unit, and their lack of connection with their classmates had not been of tremendous concern to either of them. 
Something changed over the summer, though. Now, in year six, Joel had started to antagonise him. It caught him quite off guard. Though Joel hadn't said a kind word to him since term had begun, he found himself unable to mentally recategorize him as anything other than a friend. To call Joel a bully struck him as unthinkable, despite Joel's incessant teasing, jeering and taunting. The change had been sparked, Tim knew, by Kyle Burgess. Kyle was one of the sporty boys and had had a consistently low opinion of Tim and latterly Joel for as long as Tim could remember. Yet over the summer, it transpired, Joel and Kyle's mothers had started attending the same aerobics class and struck up a friendship. As a result, Joel's family had been invited to Kyle's family's house for dinner. Within this strange crucible, the boys had forged their own unlikely alliance. At school, this translated into a new hierarchy, where Kyle, a low to mid-ranking member of the sporty group, granted a thin veneer of acceptance upon Joel, provided that Joel be widely seen to spurn Tim. Deprived of his co-conspirator, Tim made a move tantamount to social suicide. He started playing with a boy from the year below. Lucian Green was a perpetually snotty-nosed lad with a close crop of frizzy red hair, and he idolised Tim. Tim's feelings towards Lucian erred on the side of pity more than true friendship, but where was the fun in playing alone every lunchtime? The two boys would hover about the thin patch of woodland at the end of the playing field, rifling through the undergrowth in search of treasure or historical artefacts or any number of unlikely prizes. Tim would explain just what it was that they were looking for that day, providing valuable context in the form of stories, a mishmash of things he had been reading lately and improvised details based on what was around them, Lucian would make the requisite impressed noises, sometimes more enthusiastically than Tim felt was necessary, and on occasion ask questions which Tim always had answers to. One day, for instance, they were hunting for legendary creatures, Tim having lately been captivated by a weighty, hardback, illustrated bestiary. What is it we're looking for? asked Lucian as Tim overturned rocks and kicked through fallen leaves. Well, it could be anything, couldn't it? I won't know what we'll find until we find it. But what might it be? If I had to make a guess, I'd say, given conditions, we might find a gnome or two. Perhaps a bogart. Bogart, Lucian whispered. He had a peculiar habit of repeating words he was unfamiliar with in a throaty whisper. Tim was unsure how conscious a behaviour it was. Yes, you won't find anything bigger around here. You need to go way out into the woods if you wanted to find a troll, say. Or to a bridge. That's a misconception, Lucian. There are no records of trolls being found under bridges. Where are they found? You know, said Tim, and know more about it, though Lucian did not know. It was a pleasant way to spend lunch break, the school grounds only barely visible and the noise of the other students reassuringly distant. They might have passed the whole fifty minutes blissfully ignorant of the real world had it not been for the arrival of Joel and Kyle. Lucian noticed them first. They were distinguishable in silhouette, Kyle's hair sticking up like a spiky brush, Joel's a shaggy mop, not unlike Tim's, and both of them walking with an affected swagger that made Tim embarrassed and frightened in equal measure. Those two are coming over here, Lucian said. When Tim saw who he meant, he lowered his head. Don't look at them. Act like you haven't seen them. But there was no way back to school except to cross the field, the way they were coming. Tim and Lucian were cornered. What are you two doing then? 
Joel called when they were close enough that Tim could no longer pretend to be unaware of them. Being gay! Kyle let out a torrent of dirty laughter at this, throaty and croaky, his voice having apparently broken long ago in infancy and by now possessing a worn-out raspy quality like an old woman who smoked a lot. No, said Lucian, his squeaky voice barely cutting through the laughter. Couple of benders out in the woods, said Joel, and Kyle laughed even harder. Give me a kiss, Timmy, he cooed in a screeching falsetto, then made sloppy tongue sounds. Kyle's laughter switched momentarily to coughing, and he cleared his throat, then gobbed onto the ground before sighing with relief. Tim knew there was no way to win this situation. Either he say nothing and try but fail to get past them and endure their cruelty the entire walk back up to the school, or he attempt to retort yet he knew that no words he could conjure would have even a quarter of the bite, the incalculable meanness, as what they would say back. With one option as bad as the other, Tim did what seemed to him the simplest, and told the truth. He knew as soon as it left his lips that he had done the wrong thing. Actually, we were looking for magical creatures. Joel's eyes widened in a look of sheer disbelief. Kyle spewed forth his strongest fit of laughter yet. Magical creatures, he repeated in hysterics. Fairies! Joel was laughing too now, not looking at Tim but pointing his face skywards, as if what were down here on earth was so very funny that he daren't gaze directly at it. Tim knew, though, why Joel was now avoiding his eyes, as he had done when the two had approached. How dare you laugh, he thought. How dare you laugh? When Tim got home, he went straight up to his room and put the ray gun in his school rucksack. Later, at dinner, he told his parents about his day. I found a flying saucer crashed in the woods. Really? said Tim's father, liberally applying margarine to a slice of bread. There was an alien inside, but he was hurt and he tried to shoot me, but he dropped his gun and I picked it up and shot him instead. That'll teach him. Then I went and pointed it at a cow in the next field, and do you know what? What? It completely vaporised it. Nothing left, except maybe a bit of dust. Well, there you go. Elbows off the table, please, Tim's mother said. Tim was excited all morning the next day at school. It was his turn at show and tell, and he hadn't had the faintest idea what he was going to bring until he found the gun. The timing couldn't have been more fortunate. Last week it had been Joel's turn. He had brought in a little video game thing, not a proper console like a Game Boy, but a kind of cheap imitation that only played one game. It was the sort of thing you might get free with a kid's meal at Burger King. It had the Batman logo on the back. Joel had stood in front of the class, playing it silently, save for the occasional bleep-bloop sound from the game. After about a minute, he announced flatly, I've killed him, before continuing to play. Right, Mrs Eden had said, and you think that's fun for the rest of us to watch you doing, is it, Joel? Joel had merely shrugged and returned to sitting on the floor with the rest of the class. Tim knew his own offering was at least one billion times better, if not more. By the time Mrs Eden called him to the front, he was all but levitating with anticipation. On its withdrawal from Tim's rucksack, the gun was met with a chorus of approval. It was a handsome object. 
It had none of the blatant factory marks of most toy guns. No seams of ridged plastic from the injection mould, no visible screw heads or removable battery covers. <coughs> Rubbish, said Joel in a faux cough. Kyle laughed, but the rest of the class, regardless of their general opinion of Tim, remained impressed. This is a ray gun, Tim announced. I found it in the woods near my house. It belonged to an alien who is now dead. He tried to shoot me with it, but he dropped it, and I picked it up and shot him back. Then I vaporised a cow with it. Are there any questions? A few children put their hands up. Didn't happen, Joel called out. Before Tim could say anything, Mrs Eden had come over and taken the gun from his hands. Come on now, you all know that toy guns are not allowed in school. It's not a toy, Tim protested. Yes, well, a replica, or whatever you want to call it. Nevertheless, it's banned. She took the gun back to her desk and placed it in the top drawer. You can have it back at home time. You lot. Honestly, I'm beginning to think show and tell has been well and truly exhausted this year. Defeated, Tim joined the class on the floor. Wasn't even good, he heard Joel say a few rows behind him. Before the summer that distanced them, Tim had slept over at Joel's house. It was the first sleepover either boy had had in some time. Joel's house was quite nice. It was a newer build than Tim's and brighter with more windows. Everything felt very clean. Joel had a younger brother who was only a toddler. He looked exactly like a shrunken Joel with a disproportionately large head. Like Joel, he spoke loudly, but in an infant babble of which Tim could only decipher every fifth word. Joel's parents were friendly. His mother made Tim a peanut butter sandwich, which was good, though she made it with an odd kind of crustless white bread, which Tim found confusing, as he believed that the crusts were the best part. Then they went upstairs, and Joel introduced Tim to his father, who was using the computer in his office. A corner of the room had a tall bookcase, packed with very grown-up-looking books. A lot of them had a little black symbol on the spine, often paired with a vibrant shade of red. As you can see, said Joel's dad with a smile, I'm a bit obsessed with the Holocaust. Tim nodded politely, not knowing what the word meant. Night fell, and the boys were banished to Joel's room. Tim was given an inflatable camping mattress to sleep on, and the two of them took turns working the foot pump to blow it up. At nine o'clock, it was lights out. They lay in the dark silently for a minute. Then Joel said, Are you scared of the dark? Tim thought for a moment. No, not since I was very little, anyway. Are you? No, said Joel rather too quickly. Not scared of it. I basically just think it's annoying. What is? The dark, like how you can't see anything in it. And if you want to get up in the night for the toilet, you can't see where you're going. Does my head in. Oh, yes, I know what you mean. I used to have a nightlight over on that wall, so that if I did need to get up, I could see. That's all it was for. But Mum's taken it away. Says I'm too old for it. That's not very fair. It's your room, after all. That's what I said to her. She wouldn't listen. I hate her. She seemed nice to me. No, she's horrible. I hate her. 
She's mean to Dad. She treats him like shit. Tim said nothing. It was very dark in here. Since the lights went out, he had forgotten where in the room he was, how far away the walls were from him. He squinted but saw only blackness. You know, said Tim, there are these creatures, will-o'-the-wisps. Some people think they're fairies, but they're not. They're a different thing. They're like little lights with wings. They come out at night. Sometimes they show up in fields or forests and help travellers who've gotten lost. For a moment, Tim thought Joel might have fallen asleep. But then he said, I've seen those. I saw them. I got up in the night a few weeks ago and it was dark and I went out onto the landing and I saw them out the window next to the stairs. There you go, said Tim. They came to help you see. At the end of the school day, as everybody else hurried out of the classroom, Tim approached Mrs Eden to ask for the gun back. Before he could say anything, she told him to wait for a moment, then left the room herself. He stood next to her desk, waiting for a quarter of an hour before she reappeared, a cup of tea in hand. Oh, gosh, do you know what, Tim? I'd forgotten you were still here. She opened the desk drawer, took the gun out and handed it to him. It's a very nice gun. I don't want to see it in school again, all right? Yes, Mrs Eden, said Tim. Theirs was not a large school, and by the time Tim had reclaimed his weapon, the courtyard where parents collected their children at home time was empty. As Tim's house was only five minutes away and he was in year six, his parents no longer picked him up. He began to walk. Though it was not even half an hour since school ended, it felt late. It had been a long, hot summer and the heat was lingering still well into autumn. Tim's eyelids were heavy as he walked. He had the gun in his right hand. He was sweating around the grip. The sound of rubber grinding on tarmac came from behind him. He turned around to find Joel on his BMX, one leg on the ground supporting the bike at a jaunty angle. Tim felt something in his stomach plummet. All right, knob, Joel sneered. Stayed late to kiss your girlfriend, Mrs Eden, did you? I thought I was supposed to be gay, said Tim. You are? And Mrs Eden's a man, and you both get your knobs out and rub them together. Sod off! Tim turned away and kept walking. Soon he heard the rhythmic ticking of Joel's bike being pushed along slowly in his wake. Don't run away, you baby. You're such a baby. That's why you've got that stupid baby toy. Tim let himself get riled up too easily. He had talked with his parents about it in the evening after days when another playground argument had left him snotty and inflamed. Their advice to simply ignore the aggressor until they got bored by his lack of reaction and left him alone, never worked. For one thing, nobody ever got bored, no matter how long you blanked them. Christopher Higgs had once kept at it for hours, calling him Timothina over and over and over until Tim finally snapped and jabbed him in the abdomen with a geometry compass. If there was some foolproof way of getting people to leave him alone, he hadn't found it. I'm not a baby. Go away. I don't want to talk to you. Tim heard Joel make a wet snorting noise, followed by forceful spitting. A gob of saliva hit him on the back of the head. He felt that familiar constriction of his neck, the lump in his throat that meant he was only moments from crying. I'm warning you, 
he said in a wobbly voice. Joel dropped his handlebars, letting the bike fall to the pavement. Come on, then. Tim aimed his ray gun at Joel's head. Joel laughed. Oh, my God, you're so thick. Look at you and your little toy, you fucking bet. The ray hit Joel's head first. It glowed bright blue, so bright it hurt to look at. Then the glow ran down over the rest of his body and brightened and fizzed and sparked. Tim felt the heat from it. It burned his eyes to look at. He clamped them shut. When he opened them, Joel was gone. His bike remained on the ground where it had fallen. There was a mild smell in the air, as if someone in a nearby garden was barbecuing. Tim looked around. He was alone. There was nobody else on the street, and he couldn't see anyone looking out of their windows. He kept walking. Before he went home, he crossed the road into the woods and kept walking, looking for the crashed flying saucer. Though he thought he remembered exactly where he had gone, he could find no trace of it. When he gave up looking, he dug a hole in the dirt, scooping out great clumps of earth with his bare hands. Once it was deep enough that he could put his whole arm in it up to the elbow, he dropped in the gun and filled it back in.